0: This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. You're eating, and welcome to Starkville. Baseball Hall of Famer, Jason Stark. And then the robot said, strike. That's why you're going in the Hall of Fame.
1: It's an inside the park home run, Doug Gladwell. Mike tried his coffee, At Starbucks with a double latte, skinny. Doug, are you ready to make some podcast magic? I am ready. Bring on the magic wand. Let's do it.
0: (laughs) Greetings and welcome to Starkville. Now part of the athletic baseball show where you'll find great baseball talk all week long and all off-season long. I'm Jason Stark. I write about baseball for The Athletic, and I am joined once again by my good friend, writer, broadcaster, professor, distinguished former major leaguer, and the vice of Sunday Night Baseball on ESPN Radio, Doug Glanville. So Doug, Happy New Year, man. It's our first show of 2023. I I know it feels like the World Series ended like 15 minutes ago, but it's January 2023. I think we're still allowed to wish each other a Happy New Year, so I'm doing that. How's 2023 going so far in the Glanville household?
1: Yeah, you know it's 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 nice. Uh, we brought it in. Uh, you know, just pretty much going to sleep at 12:01. But I did try. I did see the ball drop. <laughs> Okay. Uh, not what it used to be. I think uh, my son was like, forget it. and going to sleep. So, um, but yeah, we're, you know, we had a nice holiday with the family and I uh, went down to North Carolina. So yeah, everything's good. I'm kind of, you know, I feel like as soon as January rolls around, back in the day growing up, the Stratomatic cards would arrive somewhere <laughs> in January and they, I knew baseball was here. So my clock tells me as soon as January hits, like baseball's coming. So I'm, I'm feeling pretty good about it.
0: Yeah, well... I don't. I don't have the stratomatic thing going for me, but I always laugh about how far away spring training feels on December 31st, and how close it feels on January 1st. It's amazing. So we, we you know, we can think about that. Um, you know, what we're not going to think about is that spam dish that you cooked the other day and you posted about. One of my uh, New Year's resolutions: never talk about spam in any form. <laughs> but, but you know I, what? I do want to talk about, and that's the yeah. Hall of Fame because the election results will be announced in two weeks, January 24th. I'll actually be in Cooperstown that day. Um, But today, we're going to get to talk uh, to Jay Jaffe from Fangraphs, who is the ultimate authority on Hall of Fame balloting in America. I'm really excited to talk to Jay. But um, one more story I want to talk about today, uh, in part because I wrote it, uh, because I broke this news in The Athletic, I reported on Monday that Major League Baseball had reinstated John Coppolella, who's the former general manager of the Braves, you know, back before Alex Anthopoulos, uh, did that five years after announcing that he had been banned from baseball for life. And I know that's confused people Um First of all, what's the definition of a lifetime ban? Um, it's something to contemplate for those of you who are really philosophical about stuff. But uh, what's more confusing, I think, to some people is uh, why is he back? And let me do my best to explain this. First thing, why was John Coppola banned for life? Um Let me just say it's not just because back in 2015, 16, 17, he was engaged in uh, making, let's describe this as under-the-table bonus payments to the agents for a bunch of kids the Braves were signing in the international market. And then they were knowingly reporting signing bonuses that were well under what they were actually paying out, which meant they didn't incur the the Bonus penalties for exceeding the the limits, and it, it, that's a long story. But he's not the first GM. He um, the Braves certainly weren't the first team to do that. They weren't the first team to be disciplined for that. So the reason that John Coppola was placed on the permanent ineligible list is not just the uh, the stuff that the Braves did in Latin America it's that when MLB caught on and started investigating this, he lied, he covered up, he didn't, in their eyes, cooperate with the investigation at a level that the league thought was clearly outrageous, especially because everyone else with the Braves was the opposite of that. And so because of how he tried to dodge cooperating with the investigation. That's what got him suspended for life. Except when baseball suspends anybody for life, uh, we need to remember something. We learned this from the Pete Rose case, even though they're very different. There is language in that suspension that allows that person to apply for reinstatement. And so the question that people have been asking me all day since this story broke is, why did baseball reinstate this guy when they won't even think about reinstating Pete Rose, who, oh, by the way, got more hits than anyone who ever lived and has now served more than 30 years for his crime of betting on baseball? All right, so this is the question we're going to try to answer. Um, Based on the statement. That MLB provided me when I asked them this question in the course of reporting the story, plus based on what else I know about this situation, John coppola is different from Pete Rose because his suspension became a defining moment, a turning point in his life. Uh, in the last five years, he's been pretty much a model citizen. He went back to school while he was working. He got his MBA at the University of Florida. He has shown contrition. He's accepted responsibility for what he did and to everyone that got hurt by that. Uh, So he has changed his life in the view of Major League Baseball. But I guess they would ask, where is the evidence that Pete Rose has changed his life since his suspension? And so... Um, that's the question that I ask, um, Doug, you're a wise and insightful observer of baseball and the human beings who are a part of it.
1: What do you make of this situation? Well, I mean, it's, um, I think it's important I mean, obviously baseball is a sport we love and it is important to uphold the fairness, the equity in the game, the rules, PEDs—all these things are very important for the integrity of the game. I think within all those things, there has to be some bandwidth for forgiveness, <clears throat> for restorative justice, for you know, all these things that allow us to see the game in a in a light that allows it to to embrace all of us. You know, we're all going to make mistakes and choices and all these things, and you try to come out of it with a continuity of what your game is about, what it's about. And um and so I like the idea that you can be reinstated. Yes, you're still on a lifetime ban until proven otherwise. Uh but I also think that you you will weigh new information. And as we've learned, baseball being a generation, you know, a game of generations and time. And you know, of course what's different today is, you know, if you look back to nineteen twenties, you just have a different culture, whether it's opportunity due to race or so you should be constantly reassessing and and reevaluating things where there's a new opportunity to look at things in a fresh light it may yield the same result as in pete rose's case but it may not in some other cases so i think that's that's generally positive i think i would look also at you know from an international standpoint there's all kinds of of controversy around the international draft and and the dominican republic and opportunity and education for the players there's all kinds of things to discuss there so you always have to pay attention with who ultimately gets the most damage in these scenarios and uh but if there's something restorative some level of restitution around these that are not just about the high stakes players but also for those in the wake Then you know i think that's also important so you do all those things and you have contrition you should have an opportunity to be heard and um and so I, I do think that's an important part of the game. And uh, because as a player, you you know, you have runs, hits, and errors. You still can win a game with errors. <laughs> you got to, you know, as long as you acknowledge that it is an error and you part in it, that, that makes a big difference. Mm-hmm. And uh, for the future and health of the game. So, um, so you know, I don't know all the details exactly of this story, but I think it's a general rule, I do like the chance of people to be able to... Um, get other opportunities. All right. So that
0: leads to this question. Um, Let's think about it before we move along to the Hall of Fame election and talk to Jay Jaffe. Do you think any team would hire John Coppola right now? Do you think he'll get another job in baseball?
1: A good question. Um, uh, I'd probably say, I mean, no, are you talking about like major league job type any job um, in baseball.
0: I mean, wouldn't like he's not gonna be a yeah, general manager, yeah, but sports. Know, working scouting, working mean, somebody's assistant front office, or working uh, yeah, uh, working the minor leagues, working some working sports in any way.
1: I'm not gonna say yes in major major league or affiliates, but I can say maybe yeah in some something around baseball. And maybe he works his way back. I mean, uh-huh. I mean, if you're going to give somebody quote a pardon or acknowledge new information and reinstate, then you're reinstated. And in, in theory, what you've done to earn reinstatement reinstatement is a, a part of the opportunity of being reconsidered. So, I, I it's possible. It's definitely uh-huh. possible. I
0: mean, it's it's an interesting question. I I don't know the answer myself. Uh, I was trying to find another executive who had been banned for life and then later allowed back in the game. Only one I could find who actually resumed exactly what he was doing before was a guy named George Steinbrenner uh, back in the 1990s. Uh, Of course, there was a slight difference between between him and John Coppolella in that George owned the team. So he basically rehired himself as owner. (laughs) It's It's always helpful if you're looking to get back in. Um... On the other hand, Alex Cora was suspended, not, not for life, but he was suspended after the Astros cheating scandal, got his job back with the Red Sox immediately. A.J. Hinch was suspended, again, not for life, but got another managing job with the Tigers immediately. So sometimes there is life after suspensions. Uh, but whether that will be true for John Coppola, I honestly have no idea right now. Okay, now we get to talk about one of our favorite topics with one of our favorite people, Doug. It's Jay Jaffe, who writes about the Hall of Fame all year round for Fangraphs, and who is also the author of The Cooperstown Casebook, one of the greatest books ever written about players and their Hall of Fame credentials. So if you don't know Jay's work, you're missing something special, because... Nobody knows more about the hall than he does. So Jay, welcome to Starkville. How are you my friend?
2: Hey, thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks for that all the kind words about my uh my book. I mean, you already did enough by by blurbing it uh, back in the day, but uh, it's always good to always good to have the praises sung by someone like you.
0: <laughs> well, thank you. My I think my favorite thing I ever did um uh, with with your book is I saw you, you hawking it on the streets of Cooperstown one summer and talk somebody into buying it.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know,
0: usually they get that kind of direct personal intervention. So you're welcome.
2: Right, right. <laughs> All
3: right.
0: That's so, right. Jay, there's there's so much we want to talk to you about as we get closer and closer to the Hall of Fame Election Day. And I, I, I think we should start by asking you to put on your Steve Karnacki hat, not to be confused <laughs> with your Brooklyn Dodgers cap. <laughs> and tell us this. Do you think anybody will get elected because I, oh. I think it's going to be close.
2: It's going to be a nail-biter. I mean, like, you know, for everybody who thinks that, um, you know, the tendency to of voters to reveal ballots before the election via Ryan Thibodeau's great tracker, which I know, you know, we both probably uh, are checking on a daily basis here. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, they, people complain that it's drained some of the suspense. I don't think so. I mean, I, I think, you know, when you only know what, what half the voters are doing, you still have a, a pretty wide range of outcomes, and it looks to me like we're going to have a nail biter. I mean, I think it's um, you know I, I saw it today Jason Jason Sardell who does the, the probabilistic uh, uh, projections based on uh, various factors, uh, um, and he says uh, uh, he, he had Scott Roland estimated at twenty six percent. I don't love those odds. Um, that's yeah. up from what it was. That's up from what it was um, a couple weeks ago. Um, you know, we've seen, uh, Todd Helton and Billy Wagner and Gary Sheffield all kind of rocket up the, uh, um, the charts in terms of the percentages they're getting from the, from the voters, uh, the published voters and the, um, uh, but those, those guys are flipping uh, a lot of no votes to yeses, whereas Roland is not. And so that's the subject of some consternation. The, and the, the reason for that is because that Roland already got some of that low hanging fruit uh, in the last couple of years and, you know, in, yeah. in, uh, in moving up to, you know, to, to the low sixties, uh, percentage wise, it's, it's, those voters are now coming around to Todd Helton. They're now coming around to, to Gary Sheffield, et cetera. Um, so I don't know. I think it's, I'd, I'd like to think, you know, given that we've seen, um, uh, you know, nail biters in the past, like, uh, uh, Tim Raines and, and, uh, Edgar Martinez and Larry Walker get over the line that we're going to see that with Roland, but boy, uh, I, I wish I I wish I felt more strongly that that was going to happen because it could be a very lonely summer up there for Fred McGriff uh, uh, if he's the only one uh, elected.
0: Yeah. And us, too. Um, you know, Jason Tardell is the real Steve Kornacki of this process. I yes. He breaks down mm-hmm. the the voting trends like he does. And I don't I, I was looking at that same projection that you were looking at, and he has rolling at about 73-ish percent, with obviously a lot of votes outstanding. So, you know, I got to thinking about this. If nobody gets in, at least on our ballot, that would be twice in the last three years in which the baseball writers have elected no players. So that would be two shutouts in three years after there'd only been two in the previous 50 years. So, you know, every election tells us something. What do
2: you think that's telling us if it happens? Well, I think it's you know, it's it's the pendulum swinging. I mean, before these before the first uh the shutout two years ago, um, we had seen a rush of twenty two players uh being elected in seven years, which was the most that we'd ever seen in a surge of that you know of that size or a span of that 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 length. Um and I think Again, it was a matter of we picked off, uh, you know, some of the some of those guys who might have stuck around a little bit longer on the ballots, like maybe Mike Messina, um, who I think entered the ballot uh, the same year as Jeff Kent, 2014. Kent's now in his last year. You know, there's there's a different world where maybe Messina Messina takes until his last year to get in. Um, so maybe some of those guys, uh, you know, their their paths were accelerated a little bit. Um, obviously I think, you know, we might be seeing a bit of a backlash to that as well. Um, you know, I think uh, writers who were especially, you know, older older generations of writers who really I think were stingier with their Hall of Fame votes, um, have maybe decided, oh, that's too many people going in. We've gotta we've gotta crack down or whatever. Like I don't see anybody I mean, there aren't any slam dunks on here. Let's concede that. Um, you know, it's it's guys who take a little bit of investigation. Um you know, I'm, I, I make their cases annually, but not everybody, you know, not everybody thinks as hard as, as hard as I do about these things. And, you know, unless you're willing to to do a little bit of a homework, you're not necessarily gonna, going to, um, you know, just check the box of Scott Rowland or Todd Helton without thinking about it. And a guy like Carlos Beltran with the controversy attached to him, that might be one you're like, oh, I'm not going to think about it this year, maybe down the road.
1: Yeah.
0: You, you know, I'm sure you know that our man Glanville played with that Scott Rowland. I'm thinking he'd like to ask you
1: about oh, it. Yeah. Doug, why don't well, you do that? <laughs> well, in a peripheral version of this question, I'm thinking about uh, if you could give us like a visual graph of, of PEDs and the perception of that throughout the last maybe decade or so. Uh, and I, and I asked that because I'm wondering a guy like Rowland, Helton, whoever, people who are at least established as clean or proven to be or whatever, um, you know, did that help them did you see some sort of bump has that flat line i'm curious about the curve of that and how it I, implied.
2: yeah that's a good question yeah i mean i think look i think voters have a certain fatigue you know because of because of all the time and all the hot air that was that was expanded on barry bonds and roger clemens and their candidacies and yeah i think some some voters are looking to find the players that you know that that uh you know they may not have put up the big numbers that those guys did, um, but they did. They do have clean reputations. I mean, you know, Scott. I mean, uh, Todd Helton has his controversies for sure. Um, you know, a couple of some some uh, alcohol related driving incidents and whatever, but I, I, it's a that's of a different scale. Um, you know, and I think there is there is maybe some element to that in, in terms of you know, voters, you know, find, you know, if they can't include Manny Ramirez and, and Alex Rodriguez on their ballot now, and they do have room, yeah, they maybe are willing to willing to give a little bit more attention to some of these other guys um, because they certainly have the space to. But others, you know, I think are, are you know, the, the PED, the, the talk about PED users has so turned them off of the process, um, you know, that they that they're maybe more dismissive of having the privilege to vote. So I think it cuts both ways. Um, I don't know that we get a single clear trend out of it. It's tough to, you know, we can, yeah, I don't know, it, it's just, it's it's tough to discern one, you know, one trend without, you know, quizzing every voter how they felt about it because not everybody will answer that question.
0: Yeah, okay, now since since you just went there, um, why wouldn't Scott Roland get elected? Uh, he was only 47 votes short last year. And the ballot's now wide open. Uh, No more Bonds or Clemens or Schilling or David Ortiz. And those guys got over a thousand votes last year. That's a lot of room on these ballots that have opened up. I mean, you've dug in on Roland as much as anybody. What do you think it is that some voters are still missing about Scott Rowland?
2: Well, I think there's still... You know, a certain segment of, of 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 voters, just as a certain segment of baseball fans, um, is maybe uh, downplays the de- the value of defensive metrics. Um, you know, I think it's always good to be to approach them with 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 some caution. Um, but in this case, we're talking about a guy who's you know, until Nolan Arenado caught up to him, he was third all time in fielding runs at third base. And third all time in Gold Gloves. It actually it's rare that it works out as perfectly as that. Um, but you know he he's he wasn't he was never the league's best hitter. He is at best he is a top ten to fifteen hitter among third basemen all time. And there have been some great hitters there. But he's an even better fielder, and it's it's the combination of those two things um, that that really puts him over the top. And I think. Particularly with third baseman, as I wrote, you know, at length in my book, I think a lot of voters have had a hard time really accepting, you know, the the defensive value there, um, and how hard it is to find somebody who does both well. I mean, he's, you know, he's kind of a, a Ron Santo type, right down to the fact that you know he his career ended in his mid thirties, as opposed to you know being able to stick around, you know, to to forty years old or whatever.
0: Yeah, if he sticks around to forty, then he has an Adrian Beltre career and it's easy.
2: You know, he's yeah, he's only got like I think twenty one or twenty two hundred hits, you know, which is kind of on the lower side. He doesn't have four hundred home runs. Um, you know, he's he's just he's he doesn't have all those statistical markers that I think, you know, people think great hitter, but he had high on base percentages and and, and I think was maybe a little bit ahead of his time in in uh, um you know in terms of the appreciation of, of, of the total package that he brought.
0: Right. You know, I, I had somebody in baseball say to me th- this winter, isn't Scott Rowland just a war guy, a wins above replacement guy? And I think that was his way of saying Scott Rowland didn't have that Hall of Fame aura, at least for him and for, I think for a lot of a lot of people. Um, I, I do wonder if he'd have it now. You know, I think Statcast would have changed the way we look at a guy. Like Scott Rowland, he would—he was so Nolan Arenado-like in his time. Um, I, I just wonder if the world would see that more clearly if we had all these incredible defensive metrics and data points to measure it, which we didn't have in his time. But I, I also understand the importance of aura. You know what aura means to a lot of voters. Um, this is a year where we might only have elect one player. Um, if we're only going to elect one player, you have a segment of voters who want that player to feel like a Hall of Famer in their right, hearts yeah. and minds, if you know what I mean. Do you have any issue with that, Jay?
2: Well, I, you know, I, I think not everybody's really amazed. And, you know, I think that we've tried to spend, you know, I've spent the last 20 years trying to remind people that the Hall of Fame is full of all shapes and sizes. Um you don't always get the 95% first ballot guy. Um you know every year. I mean those guys look you don't you don't need me to tell you that that uh, that Frank Thomas is a Hall of Famer or so you know or, or, or somebody like that. It's it's the ones who take a little bit of thought and and require a little bit of analysis and you know some people are like, you know, some voters are like if you have to think about it he's not a Hall of Famer. Um you know I've heard that more <laughs> than once. Um but um you know i when you when you go through and you look at the you know who's in the hall of fame who's actually in there you find that not everybody was was uh uh that guy who was you know MV, the you know the the mvp or at least a top 3 mvp choice you know perennially for for a stretch of his career um so yeah you you don't you don't always get that aura guy and i think you also you don't always get that first ballot guy and i think you know the notion that somebody has to be a first ballot type guy or that we should be placing all this emphasis on what year a guy gets elected uh as a you know as 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 a as a value determinant um i think is i think is misplaced um yeah it's i mean it's cool when you get the Derek Eaters of the world or whatever they're, they're just easy choices they have the milestones uh and get in for the first time um but again you know Edgar Martinez's plaque hangs on the wall, you know, just as Derek Jeter's does, and 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 you know, people people come and they touch that plaque and they feel, you know, they they feel the reverence for for, for both of those guys, and they you know they have their memories of that of, of of both of those players, and they're special too, and you know, that's what it means to be a Hall of Famer. It's just not, it's not just you know the guy it's it, the guy who who graduates first in his class, so to speak.
0: Let's loop let's Doug in on this. Um, I mean, Doug, you played with Scott Rowland in his prime. Um, what? What? How
1: would you describe the
0: aura <laughs> that Scott yeah, I mean, Rowland projected?
1: Well, I mean, it, it's, what's fitting for me with Rowland this year is with Fred, to me, I was a prime dog, but Fred McGriff and Crime Dog, you, you've, you've rewarded the model <laughs> of consistent excellence, right? Someone that, you know, I mean, there was years it was flashy, but even, you know, by the league standard, and I guess PEDs or whatever, he became sort of, he was still the same guy, right? So there's something to be said for consistency. And, you know, Scott, we called him Rock, you know, Rock rolling Because of his consistency, of course, he was big, you know, stature guy, but he was also very solid in every facet. And I always found with Scott that he was, he was a guy that, could have hit for average, but sort of wasn't quite the 40 home run guy. He was, you know, it's almost like he could choose what who to be and wanted to always be himself, right? That, you know, we would say like, you know, from Jasper, Indiana, Scott Rowland is always the same guy. And there's something <laughs> to be said for that dependability, uh, you know, the sort of bringing the lunch pail, checking the timestamp and going in every single day. And I remember conversations when Jimmy Rollins came up about you know Rollins wanted to be the star he had that and roland just wanted to go to work and go home and destroy their opponent in between <laughs> and that was scott you know and but um <laughs> but yeah some of the intangible moments i think of him is um you know i remember he talked to us at length about the mythology around the long-term deal the phillies offered him and all these things because he wanted to clear the air with his teammates that he wasn't rejecting us. You know, he was making certain decisions uh, that that he didn't actually he wasn't confronted with contractually, but there was a sort of political effort. He was always very clear about uh, of everything that was happening. so you you kind of knew. and he was you know known for pulling people aside a quiet leadership and talk through a lot of things. But you know, he had his rules. He had his kind of approach. So but you know, I think of a couple moments. One was Wayne Gomes. Uh, he had two home runs against the Rays one game and came in the locker room. He was a pitcher for those What's who that? don't remember. Oh, Wayne Gomes. Gomes. pitcher, yes. Yeah. Oh yeah, Wayne, Wayne was, a was on our team and, and he, Roland comes in after this great game and almost in tears, Wayne was like, it's such an honor and a pleasure to play with you. <laughs> You're just one of the greatest players. And I think that's kind of what you felt with him. Uh, even if like all oh, his numbers didn't tell the whole story. Uh, he was, for, you know, ferocious, you know, running on the bases and defense and consistent. And uh, and he was funny. I remember when Guerrero was taking batting practice, Vladimir Guerrero Sr. And he said, that guy is so much better than I am. It's ridiculous. <laughs> but, but I'm still going to have my career. So, sure. yeah, I, I um, appreciated him. And so, yeah, I, this would be a great year for him because he is kind of the Fred McGriff kind of storyline. He's very steady and you don't know, look up and all of a sudden you're like wow great player
2: i just wanted to ask both of you a question i mean you guys probably because you're both you know philadelphia guys you know in terms of jason you covering it and doug you playing there um i do wonder you know to, doug touched on it with the contract i do wonder you know a couple of things first of all if scott had uh, Roland and stuck around for that you know that great run that the phillies had a few years later you know if he'd be in a better position uh from the voters but also if you know, if, if the Phillies organization, you know, by, by um, you know, we, I've got quotations from Larry Boa and Dallas Green, both publicly blasting him in there. And, you know, obviously the, what was known about, you know, the contract of uh, the big extension offer that he got and turning it down, if the well was kind of poisoned for him there. And if that's, if that has, um, you know, made the, you know, uh, I think um Cost him in terms of perception. Now the flip side of that is he got to go to St. Louis and you know was on two World Series teams, including a champion. So he you know he got his, his moment in the national spotlight. But I do wonder if if there was you know something that that, that he missed out on um, because of the way that it all unfolded in Philadelphia, not not entirely his own fault.
0: Yeah, what, I mean what what a great thought um, because I've I never really thought about it in quite those terms, Jay. If he signs that deal that extension offer, he is there as Rollins arrives and Utley arrives and that team begins to form around him and he sees where it's leading. Um, his story would have been so different. As it was, <laughs> Doug, I know you know this, but Scott was a fairly opinionated human being. <laughs> he had <laughs> thoughts and he would let you know what those thoughts were. And it, that's why he got into it with uh, Larry Boa and Dallas Green because when he didn't when he did not agree with something they knew it it wasn't like he would just put his head down and uh and not say anything he, he felt like he was a, a guy on those teams and he needed to be the one who said that
1: and so that had a lot to do with all of that I mean it's not what um, he, he didn't he didn't see it as a fit for him and that's it. When, and he once he's locked in on that, right? That's it. You know, I mean, he played well with Francona. I think that maybe if Francona was still there, but I, I don't think he really felt that that was a, the best match for him. And when you get to free agency and you have finally the power to choose or you you make a choice, you know, I I left Philadelphia and I, I love Philly on a lot of levels, but I left for opportunity. You finally earned that right now. A couple of stories that come to mind. Yes.
0: They they did no, trade. Exactly. him, Doug. But that I mean, was I think it had, it had ended, a lot to do with know, but...
1: they weren't gonna sign him. All right. And and so that was he... clear, right. of okay? course. As you mentioned, clear. But um, but I think okay, Jimmy Rollins, I mean, and Scott was funny, but uh Jimmy came up talking nonstop, which we love him for, and Scott Rowan called a meeting with me and Bobby Abreu and said, Jimmy Rollins is getting kicked out of this batting practice group like tomorrow. That's it. I can't take it anymore, and so he kicked him out of the group, and he told him it was like he was kind of asking us, but not really, and uh, and poor Jimmy was silent for like three days, and Scott was like, "That's it, you know," and and so he had and look, we were in Cleveland, you know, in the year the final year, we were in Cleveland, and all these quotes supposedly anonymous, supposedly leaked out, and it's, it's talking about how Roland is a cancer, he's terrible for the locker room and all this. And Roland, like called the meeting, Cleveland said, whoever said this about me needs to stand up like right now. Like, of course, nobody said anything, but he was like, you know, he want to go to the source. He want to go to the press and find out who your sources were. He was just like, no, you don't get to talk behind my back like this. I mean, that's how it went that season. And and so, you know, Scott was very consistent. So the way he turned this into something funny was we're, we have a, a quilt that's made every year for charity. I think it's by the player's wives or girlfriends or something. And every player got a square in this quilt. So, you know, Scott, you know, I guess it submitted his square and he's traded to St. Louis. So I, I'm really last to do this because I'm not married at the time. I may not have a girlfriend, whatever. So I was like, and you're supposed to go in and sign your square and then they auction it for charity. So I finally go in. I'm one of the last players to sign this quilt. And in the middle of the quilt is a black square. Like, it's all red and white, Philly's color, and there's a black square in the middle of it. So I'm like, I look a little closer. And Roland had sketched, like, a a, a painting, basically, of himself in uniform standing over a dock as if he was going to jump into the ocean. And it's like choppy waters. There's ravens in the sky. It's purple, dark green. <laughs> it's like a tornadoes in there. and And that was his final message. Like, this is a charity for, like, why Philly's wife charity, let's auction this off. And he literally puts like death and despair with like a tombstone in the middle of this quilt. So so I am I was I was lot. once I figured it out, I, I could not stop laughing to the point it was like 15 straight minutes. I could not stop laughing. So I pick up the phone and I call Scott and he's already traded by then. And as soon as he answers it, he's laughing hysterically. He didn't hello, he just started laughing. He's like, I know what happened. I mean, so that was Scott. Like, it was his game. Like, he played the game, and for that, he was just, like, a legend in, in Philly. So he had the straight face. He had his rules. He was very opinionated. But in the end, he's like, I just want people to do it the right way. And if, if you don't, I'm going to just, like, I'm going to use some humor against you. So anyway, I always appreciated Scott. And I'm sure we can talk about Bobby Abreu, by the way, as well. So two players um, that I played with that kind of have this, like, on-the-cusp thing about them.
0: Yeah, well, look, we we, 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 we got to move on, but just bottom line here, uh, you know, I somebody at the Hall of Fame said to me, this was at a point where it looked like it's still possible that the the Veterans Committee could elect Kurt Schilling and that the writers could elect Scott Rowland. He said, "Wow, it'd be a big summer for us uh, with Philadelphia, huh?" And I said. <laughs> don't know about Philadelphia and Scott Rowland. (laughs) I
4: don't don't think
0: Philadelphia is that excited about Scott Rowland getting elected. But anyway, let's move on because to be honest, the guy I really want to ask you about is Carlos Beltran. Um, You know, Jay, Doug and I were just talking about the John Coppolella story that I wrote and about how uh, Alex Cora and A.J. Hinch after their suspensions got managerial jobs. Um, And it it makes me wonder, Carlos Beltran already paid a price for the Astros scandal. Is it now now his turn to wear that scandal? Is he going to pay the price by not getting elected to the Hall of Fame?
2: Yeah, look, I do wonder that. And I was very concerned about that going into the cycle when we didn't really have, um, you know, much of a gauge of, of, of what to expect. I think I wrote like, you know, I was in my profile, which was probably the longest profile I've written uh, of any player, the side of a rod. um, You know, I worried that he might, he might get under 5%, you know, because everybody turned away from him all of a sudden Um, that's obviously, that's not the case. I haven't seen the latest in the tracker, but I know he was coming in there 50 ish percent.
0: He's over 50 So I'm
2: not – yeah, yeah. so he's going to be fine. I mean, I think – well, I'm not going to say he's going to be fine Um, because there are caveats here. We'll get back to that. how are you defining fine? I do – yeah, I do think – I I do think that it is very conspicuous to me the way that he was kind of left holding the bag as though he were like – you know, look, we know Carlos Beltran is a very charismatic and very smart player – with hall of fame level statistics. I mean, 200, you know, 2,700 plus hits 435 home runs, um, gold gloves, defensive metrics, in, you know, highest base stolen base percentage. I mean, he is, he's a top 10 guy in jaws. Um, it was very conspicuous though, that he was the only player named in Rob Banford's report. Um, personally he doesn't seem to have benefited statistically he had a, he had the worst season of his career he was basically on his last legs retirement wise um but you know yeah he, he it seems like he was left to wear you know a lot of the responsibility and a lot of the blame and you know while alex cora and aj hinch you know got got jobs as soon as they were eligible after being suspended you know, Beltran lost his, his, his managerial job, his name, I don't think is, has, has been uh, considered seriously for any managerial opening since. Um, and it seems to me, uh, like, I have a problem with that. And I especially, uh, like, uh, you know, I, I do think what he did was very serious, was very serious. I, it disappoints me. Um, I thought about not voting for him myself. But, I, you know, I also think that as manfred made clear in his famous september 2017 memo uh and in his report you know the onus on enforcing these rules uh was on the teams and that was why luno and and Hinch were the ones suspended and Cora was the one suspended rather than the players and it seems kind of backhanded that 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 beltran has has been punished uh you know in the court of public opinion and i, I I don't like that. It, 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 that bothers me because, yeah, I do think, you know, this, you know, his punishment has lingered much longer. Um, so I, that's, that's kind of where I am at. It. And I tossed and turned about where, to, where, what, whether he'd be on my ballot.
0: Yeah. I, you know, I haven't revealed how I voted yet. Uh, I'll, so I have to leave everybody in in suspense on that <laughs> until I write my ballot column next week. But I, I can tell you, I've, I agonized over that vote for a long time. I, it, it. He stopped me from sending off my ballot for days, and I think the reason is that uh, Carlos Beltran makes us think deeply about the whole concept of cheating in baseball. And so I, you know, I feel like if you're one of those voters who has never voted for any of the PED guys because they're cheaters. I don't see how you can possibly vote for him. But if you're somebody like me who did vote for Bonds and Clemens, then uh, a guy like Carlos Beltran lives in that gray area where, you know, we're trying to weigh his career before he got to the 2017 Astros. What if he'd never played for that team? (laughs) He would never have been named in the report. None of that would have happened. Uh, And, you know, just trying to judge whether his kind of cheating. Was the same as the cheating that everybody's punishing the PED dudes for, and I'm curious, Jay, where do you stand on that whole
2: aspect of it? Yeah, I, you know, I think the PED guys, as you know, as as in my research, if you think that the, the use of performance-enhancing drugs in baseball began when Mark McGuire and Jose Canseco started shooting up in the A's clubhouse. Boy, have I got you know? Have have I got some oceanfront property in Kansas to sell you? Um, because it goes back to the 19th century. Pud Galvin, you know, using uh, using you know some some snake oil, and you know Babe Ruth reputedly injecting uh, extract from sheep testicles, and you know all manner of players <laughs> wow. in the in this yeah all manner of players in the 1960s. Um, you know, experimenting with amphetamines, and you know, to the point that you know, we had you know, decades where where amphetamine use was rampant, and amphetamines are a higher class of uh, regulated drug by the by the uh, food, you know the the, the, uh, um, the FDA. So, uh, I, you know, there's a continuum there, and just as there's a continuum with PED usage, and you know, users are in the hall of fame, users who padded their numbers, uh, you know, because they were staying in the lineup when they should have been sleeping one off or whatever, um, you know, in the seventies the or eighties or whatever um, there's, you know, the science dealers. I mean, we had all kinds of science stealers. I remember I was, when I was researching the, this, the Beltran article, I, I, you know, I came across, um, you know, it, it was only a few years ago that the 1951 giants came clean uh, about the fact that they had an electronic <laughs> system, you know, you know, to, to steal signs. And I mean, the most famous, you know, one of the most famous moments in baseball history is now indelibly attached to um, you know to a sign stealing system. And the, you know, I think it was the New York Post. Somebody, said, these guys are practically gloating. It's like, yeah, you guys used you know used used illegal sign stealing to, to to flip the 1951 pennant race. It's like, yeah, we did. You know, and apart <laughs> from sparing a thought for for Ralph Franca and the grace with which he wore you know his his uh, role as the goat, um, they were pretty unrepentant um we've kind of glamorized science dealing over the years we meaning just the general baseball public and the media and i think it's it's to me it's you know just in the, you know it's not that far from the way that you know uh ball doctrine spitballing has been glamorized Gaylor perry didn't get into the hall of fame immediately because there was something of a log jam but he's in the hall of fame because he won 300 games and struck out 3,000 guys and was an incredibly colorful character who's unfortunately no longer with us but uh, i had a lot of fun writing about his career but you know, I there's there's sort of a nod and a wink uh that comes with a lot of this stuff. And I feel like if it hadn't affected a championship, we probably would feel that that way or closer that way about Carlos Beltran. Um, he, didn't break any, he didn't break any records. And, you know, the way that you know so there's there's less you know, there would have been less um uh outrage real or 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 um performative. Uh, over what
0: he did yeah doug i would love to hear you weigh in on that because you you and i've talked about
1: cheating quite a bit it's challenging i mean i I think (laughs) the you know what's the major way we evaluate these players in getting into the hall of fame it's numbers it's just numbers right it's timing and numbers and it's all floating around that and it does appear to me that PEDs was more consequential to those numbers than sign stealing. Um, I think that's, you know, and like, I mean, I've written about this from a player standpoint, you think about, just take my career. Who was I competing against? Yeah. Many times it was the guy in the other dugout, but many times it was this hidden world of who's beating you out for the center field job in Philadelphia. Uh, who are you competing against when you go to arbitration or when the jobs open up in the off season, and you're all fighting for a fourth outfielder, who are you competing against? When the entire league is elevated or there's a whole class of players elevating these numbers artificially or enhanced-wise, that creates a career problem for you. Uh, and I think that also has the same implications of those who are being weighed against you in in the court of opinion around who is a Hall of Famer, who's not. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a connection there. Um, and so that's, you know, yes, if you're, if you're the Houston Astros 2017 or whatever year and you're stealing signs, I mean, yes, of course you're beneficiaries and it's horrible, uh, but I know like the, if, you know, the whole league and I'm sure there's other teams, okay? <laughs> the whole league is, everybody's doing this. First of all, pitchers won't stand for it eventually because it's like, how would you ever think that system would sustain when pitchers are just getting beat to death out there and to just get saying, oh, it's cool for when you're destroying an entire position your your entire profession as a pitcher is destroyed and you're just going to let the hitters win because it's your team like that, that was unsustainable so we could blame mike fires or whoever but no after a while the pitching world would have re- revolted against that but that being said is a, i think that's um you know that's how i differentiate so yeah beltran i mean yeah i'm sure first of all s- stealing signs under certain circumstances is pretty normal like and I didn't even like it when we were in Texas and like, okay, get on second base and communicate. I found that to be very uncomfortable to me, so I don't think we even did it as a team when we could have. Um, so anyway, I I do think that that's where I kind of ask those questions, like, all right, this has what which thing has much more of a direct, linear, correlation to you being a viable candidate in the Hall of Fame, and are they equal? And I guess I guess that's the question. <laughs>
0: Yeah. What's the answer? <laughs> Good, Jay, you're the arbiter of oh, all things well, Hall of Fame. <laughs> I mean,
2: I, where, where I where I where I ended up coming down was when i when i voted, you know, when i voted for for, uh, for Hall of Fame ballots, um, and before that, when I was doing my virtual ballots, it's just a way to show, you know, where your, your 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 lines in the sand end up leading you, and and just how difficult it is to fill out to fill out a Hall of Fame ballot. You know, I, is is that I. You know, when it came to the PED users i kind of drew the line at 2004 the the advent of, of testing and, and, and suspensions and said everything before that belongs to the wild west period where you know maybe these guys you know had a pretty good idea of just what advantage they were getting but major league baseball was uninterested and unwilling to punish them and it was kind of a complete institutional failure you had owners looking the other way you had the commissioner you know loath to enforce anything I, I, leave that in one box and, and then, you know, anybody who, who tested positive afterwards knew what the consequences were and, and, and I judge accordingly. So I have voted for Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens. Um, I voted for Sammy Sosa once, um, because all we have on him is, is the survey test. I mean, I test sure, but, but the survey test was, you know, which predated the actual you know testing and penalties. Um, Whereas I have not voted for Alex Rodriguez or Manny Ramirez. Um, I'm a yes on Gary Sheffield. I'm a no, you know, it's, and that leads you to a, to a strange place where, you know, your ballot is a patchwork. If you were to rank the players one to 10 in terms of who had the best numbers and you're voting for players, three, four, you know, one, three, five, six, and and nine, you know, but two, four, seven, and eight are, have been ruled out because of, you know, that's weird. Let's just acknowledge that's weird. But <laughs> Where I ended up and I think what kind of swung it for me when I when I filled out my ballot and I, I spent a lot of time at the winter meetings in San Diego talking to talking to voters and, and, and other writers, you know, how, how they how they viewed it But where I landed was like, look, you know, if Major League Baseball couldn't apply a punishment to to Beltran, just as just as they couldn't do it to Barnes or or Clemens, other than, you know, the publicity and innuendo. I don't want to be the frontier. I don't want to be the one applying frontier justice here. Um, like I think that you know, the league you know wants us to be the henchmen. No, I I, I I reject I reject that. If he's on the ballot, he deserves my consideration, and I have my line. And, and you know, I, ultimately, that was why I, I voted for, for Beltran.
0: You know, it's been interesting to watch the Beltran vote on the Hall of Fame track, tracker that you mentioned earlier. Early on, when I was still messing with my ballot, uh, it I was looking at this really closely. It felt like most of the voters who were voting for Beltron were also writers who were voting for A-Rod and Manny, and that makes total sense. But we've seen that start to change. I'll give you an example. Uh, here at The Athletic, just this week, we had 14 of our voters reveal their ballots. You can find it on our site right now. 12 of the 14 voted for Beltron, but eight of those didn't vote for either A-Rod or Manny. And then there was Keith Law who voted for A-Rod, but not Manny. So it just tells you how complicated this is. I'd like to ask both of you guys, like, what does that tell us? What do you, I, I understand everybody who doesn't vote for A-Rod and doesn't vote for Manny and doesn't vote for Beltron. But mixing those names on the ballot—not voting for A. Rod, not voting for Manny, but
1: voting for Beltran—what is that saying, Doug? What do you think it's saying? Well, I mean, I think Jay, you know, mentioned how it's—it's it's, you try to come up with a methodology, and you—and you know, it's could be imperfect. You try to make it defensible, uh, but you know, when it comes to crime, I mean. You know, there's all kinds of people who've gotten away with crimes, <laughs> or or like the institutions look the other way, <laughs>
2: um,
1: and you know, just like and that doesn't necessarily mean that it's unimpeachable or or, um, but I think the, um, I think when you deal with Beltran, I guess for me, I would probably separate him from A. Rod and Manny Ramirez. I mean, that's that's probably how I did that. I don't, I'm not a voter, but that would be. I'd make probably some distinction between the two. I think there's an element of a if once you get a younger generation of voters, and people's kind of say, well, you know, ah, uh, you know, it's a good hour anyway. I don't really care. I mean, you might get that, and Rod may at some point get in. um Despite that, so uh, so I do think that there's a generational component, an age component, and I think if it, it underscores the real poison to what PEDs and many of these scandals uh due to the game and that is you can't really resolve it that well because it's so unclear and that's what it did to the game right i mean and sure there's many examples so i'm not saying it's just PED guys but that's that's what happens you you really it 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 taints the color it colors your whole history and all the numbers that are associated with it which is tragic i think in a lot of ways and that was the selfish decision of, yeah, and so of think many that... and also institutional failures. So I, I, I don't think it's one thing. And so do you think that, that the
0: PED era left its mark on those of us who vote and we're still, we, now we don't know what to I mean, make of any kind of cheating?
1: what it feels like. I mean, it does. And it um, does. We've, yeah.
2: I, RJ. Yeah. Yeah. I said, I, I remember writing this um, for the baseball perspectives book, extra innings in, uh, I, I believe it came out in 2011. And Jason, I, this was one of the first times I'd written about uh, uh, the hall of fame voting and PEDs at length. But I think, I, I think it was you, I actually quoted in there about Mark McGuire hitting the ballot. And it was some, you know, and I, I did the math and I was like, we are going to be talking about PEDs in the hall of fame for the next 30 years. I mean, that was my that was my math, and that was uh, based on Alex Rodriguez um, right. having a 15 candidacy. we the Hall of Fame trimmed trimmed that to, to, to 10 years, but that's still you know A Rod is going to be eligible now until 2031, and Mark <laughs> McGuire hit the ballot in 2007. That's a quarter of a century of just annual PED discussion, and like we just. We're trapped by it, you know. We're yeah, it, making it stuff. It's, 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 it it's the anti the anti gift that keeps on giving. Like, you know, in some ways, if if, if guys like Bonds and Clemens had been a, a, elected, maybe we wouldn't be talking about this. Maybe, maybe, maybe all this stuff would die. Like, we wouldn't be confronted with it as an annual debate, and we could maybe get some closure on the air and Say, yeah, boy, a lot of people really messed up, including these guys, but they were still Hall of Famers. Move on and let's in the future be more vigilant about cheating and try to keep harder lines. But no, it, this the fact that this stuff lingers, I think makes, and, and the fact that we do chase our tails in trying to rationalize some route through these various conundra um, maybe keeps us, maybe isn't good for us in that way. And then it keeps us sort of like with a, with a um, moving the goalposts to what our gut tells us rather than any kind of, you know moral certitude. I don't know. that's just it just occurred to me that that, that with all that that um, you know, listening to what doug said and 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 you know having sympathy for his plight. Um, and I did think for a second there about about a couple of players that you know, when I vote, I'm a more you know, I'm a more of a bigger bigger hall guy, although not too big a hall guy because I'm only only for seven this time. but you know, some of the guys I'm voting for, Yeah, if they were clean, they were competing against these PED guys. If their numbers are just a little bit short, like I think Bobby Abreu is an example. I don't have any evidence that Bobby Abreu used. I'm going to assume that he didn't while leaving open the possibility that, hey, we don't know everything. But if Bobby Abreu is kind of in that that, uh, fringe for me, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt because I don't think he did anything, and maybe he would have been a bigger star – if he tried to keep up in that, in that, in that arm race, so to speak, or if there hadn't been um, other guys, you know, doing stuff that we now know.
0: You, you know, we could talk about this for like six hours without any trouble, but mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm going to spare people that <laughs> I, I do want to ask you one more thing though. Uh, sure. You've been writing this brilliant stuff about the hall of fame for many years, but you've only been voting for the hall of fame for what is it? Two years, three years. Three, three. So what has it been like to actually fill out that ballot? Is it a thrill? Um, has it changed the way that you go about your process in any way?
2: It's yeah, it's it, it, it on one level. It's anticlimactic because because when I hit the when I you know, when I got the ballot the first time, it was the first shutout since 2013. Um <laughs> You know, and the fact that there's now a, potentially a second shutout in my three years of voting is the, that I already has not been lost on me. Um, You know, I spent so much time helping voters come to the, you know, the the decision to elect a lot of these guys that they're not left on the ballot for me. So that's kind of funny in a way. Um At the same time, like, look, it is so damn cool. I, I didn't go into this thinking that I would ever get the vote. Um It is. And I'm sure you're aware of this, Jason, you get that first email, it's in the middle of the playoffs, October 25th or 27th, the Hall of Fame sends you an email saying, hey, you know, you are qualified to vote in the Hall of Fame election, please check your address. If that thing comes in the top of the fifth inning, I have filled it out before the bottom of the fifth inning is started. I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm like, yep, we're doing this. We are doing this. Not going to wait. Not going to wait. Um, and every, you know, every communication that comes uh, thereafter, I'm just like making sure I'm on top of this. I'm not going to screw this up. And then I get that ballot and I have a special s- spot in my office, which unfortunately does not get regular cleaning. Um, <laughs> but I but I put it there and and I make sure it's there and I check it even though there's no way my daughter could reach it or anything like that. There's you know no <laughs> nobody else is nosy enough to start rifling through it and I check it and but then I you know I go through my process and I I look at every candidate again I you know FanGraphs is is very generous with the amount of space that they afford me and they let me you know take a four thousand word profile and apply you know just check some facts in it update the voting stuff and, and publish it again so voters can see it again instead of having to dig through last year and do their own mental math and so i take seriously the reevaluation every year of these guys and then you know sometime between christmas and new year's i sit down and like okay these are my yeses from last year i don't think i'm changing on those now what are we going to do about beltran what are we going to do about krod that was the other one this year that i had some you know some question which way i was going to go and you feel the weight of it. I feel the weight of it because I'm on social media. I've got a you know, substantial following. I see what, I see the way that that um, you know the, that that uh, that fans attack um people who don't vote that they want to vote. It's like it's like watching piranhas <laughs> strip a cow. I mean, it's just, it's just it can be brutal. And I, and I and I you know I, I'm wary of that. But I want but I but I want people to know that you know regardless of the final vote. Yeah, I've thought about this. I've done the best I can. And, and so I t- do take it seriously, but it is an honor and it's a thrill um, to do it. And I don't ever want it to feel like it's something that I take for granted um, because it means a lot. I'm not somebody who came up through the newspaper ranks and had, uh, you know, was was slogging it out on the, on the road at the ballpark and trying to beat deadlines every single night. Um, but, you know, for the most part, you know, the BBWA, uh, peers in the BBWA have accepted me, you know, as one of their own, and 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 um, told me directly or indirectly that they value my work. So it means a lot to me for that for that kind of acceptance. And 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 to, so I do take this very seriously when I do it, and I do, you know, take take, uh, um, you know, uh, I think it just it just means a lot that people like yourselves, people who've been doing this a lot longer than I have you know, value what I do and use it as, as a, as an aid in their own, in their own balance. So it's, you know, and, and look, it's, it's, it's good to have something that, that your employer knows that you're going to be one of the most red brighters in the country for, you know, for, for a couple months. Let's not, let's not kid it. We, we all, we all need a hook, Jason. Um, you've got your, your, your weird and wacky and whatever. And, and uh, um, you know, among, among other things and, and, and all that, I mean, having, having this little niche of my own has, has been, you know, has been big for me and I try to maintain it uh, um, with uh, uh, as best I can.
0: Well, we're all, we're all grateful that you have that niche. We, we, we definitely value your work here in Starkville Mm -hmm. and really glad that you stopped by to visit us and to enlighten us. Uh, I I know you got me charged up about this hall of fame election. So um, happy hall of fame season, man. I can't wait to read every word that you write about mm-hmm. this in the next couple of weeks. Thank you so All much. Right, All right.
2: Thanks, a lot. thanks so much, Jason. And thanks, Doug. Nice yeah. to finally talk to you here. And uh, thanks, guys, for having me on.
3: Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever, and that's why I wanna tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. One more great product from LinkedIn. You're there to network, you're there to look for jobs, you're there to post jobs. And how about LinkedIn Sales Navigator? It's a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high value customers drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, surface key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date, first-party data enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash baseball show. That is linkedin.com slash baseball show for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash baseball show and get started.
0: Okay, Doug, I know you've waited all year for this, all week and a half of it. (laughs) <laughs> it's it's time for Listener Trivia, our way of involving you, our favorite listeners in this show. Uh, this is the first Listener Trivia question of 2023. So, so Doug, does this mean we're undefeated this year in trivia?
1: Yeah. Can I get a ruling from you on that? An entire year without defeat, so I'm feeling very good right now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and it, yep, an entire year, a week and a half of it. Uh, Look, since it's Hall of Fame season, we thought it would be cool to ask our listeners, hit us with a Hall of Fame question. Uh, Hit us with a question about this year's ballot. And we got a tremendous question back. Uh, I'm really excited to take a shot at this one. So why don't we welcome in this week's special trivia guest star. It is James Terry. So, James, welcome to Starkville. Uh, This is your first time here. Here to ask us one of these questions, am I right?
4: That's oh, correct, right. my first time.
0: Wow, exciting. All right, so so tell us a little about yourself, where you're from, mm-hmm. what team you root for, and why you think you got this mysterious urge mm-hmm. to stump us with a little Starkville Trivia.
4: All right, so uh, I'm from I'm from Connecticut, yeah. and um, I'm weirdly enough I'm a Minnesota Twins fan, but from Connecticut. Not not many of us out <laughs> what? here.
0: That's where I am right now. So. Um, and that, then, does that, that have something to do with those the New Britain team that was a Twins farm team yeah. for a while?
4: Actually, no. well, all right. So the, the actual <laughs> story is pretty weird. Uh, I'm I'm sure you remember a pitcher for the Mets oh, named yeah. Rick Reed. Yeah. Um. So the one of the first games I saw he left injured and I felt bad for him. I was, I was, it was like 99, 2000 around that, around that time. Um, I was just a little kid and I felt so bad for him. He became my favorite player. And then a year or two later, he was traded to the twins. So I just, I kind of followed him. And it's a weird, weird backstory, but I just, I never left the twins after that.
2: So.
0: All right. Okay. whatever, whatever works. And, 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 what a, what was it that made you think I'm going to ask a trivia question to these knuckleheads on Starkville?
4: Well i i love i love numbers i love um i do just a, a cheap plug uh, i do have a Twitter account twins at twins dingers we do a lot of trivia facts about home runs and um a lot of twin stuff but ultimately i just it i have a love for numbers um and just if if you follow that account you'll see a lot of i come up with some weird stats and. I'm good at finding them, so I was able to find this one.
0: Uh, I'll be be—I'll definitely be following that account.
4: <laughs> and, awesome. Yeah,
0: we love your question. So uh, this is it, man. It's time for your 15 minutes of fame. James, why don't you hit us with your Hall of Fame trivia question? All
4: right. Carlos Beltran, one of the biggest names on the ballot this year, is one of five players to meet the following criteria. 50% of his appearances in center field, at least 2,000 hits, at least 300 home runs, and multiple gold gloves. So I want to see if you guys can Mm. name the other four. (laughs) Do you now?
0: So, Doug, we're looking for four Mm. center fielders, basically, with at least 2,000 hits, 300 homers, and two Mm. gold gloves. And I think we can get this. But first of all, just checking, Doug, just confirm you're not one of the answers to this question well, I'd, is that I'd be what you
1: call the negative of this answer. So I'm the other side. So the other. <laughs> so everything
0: that it, that these players are not. Well, you I did were probably had a fifty
1: percent thing, uh, and that's it. Uh, everything else is <laughs> yeah. just a vacuum of of not meeting up to the standard. <laughs>
0: okay, so we can we can yeah. cross the name Doug Glanville probably. off our list. Um, all right, so we need four. Two of these seem to me mm-hmm. to be incredibly obvious. Uh, that would be two guys mm-hmm. named Willie Mays and Ken mm-hmm. Griffey Jr. Uh, you know, Mays would have many more gold gloves if the gold glove voting had started earlier, but he, he definitely has enough mm-hmm. to join this club. Okay. So we need two more. Okay, it feels to me as though one of the other two is Andrew Jones, right? He, we know he has the gold gloves and the homers. Did he get to 2,000 hits? I guess Mm. it's possible he didn't, because his career did implode after he turned 30, as I've talked about a million times. But I'm pretty sure that answer is yes. Um, Then I think the other is Jim Edmonds. Uh, Kind of the same deal with him. Easily enough gold gloves, definitely enough home runs. Did he finish with 2,000 hits? I think he did. But before we settle on this, we should talk about who else could be on the list. Um, You have to remember, gold gloves started in the 1950s, which means no Joe DiMaggio, none of those great center fielders of yesteryear. Um, Mickey Mantle doesn't have the gold gloves. Uh, Kirby Puckett, I'm pretty sure he doesn't have the 300 homers. Mike Trout, I thought Mm -hmm. of. Believe it or not, he does not have the does gold gloves. Does
1: he have 2,000 gloves. hits yet? Yeah, I don't think he
0: does either. Uh, he's right He's right there. Maybe this is the year he gets to 2,000. He's, he's pretty good. Uh, Andre Dawson, I thought about, has the numbers, has the gold gloves. The question is whether he Ooh. played at least half his games in center wow. field. That's a good one. I don't think he did. You know, He played so little in center yeah, after wow, he left great. the Expos. But he's definitely a possibility. So, that, like, those are the names that I thought of. Uh, Doug, you're an expert <laughs> in center field lore. I'm sure you... Th- well, I'm sure
1: you thought of some names I haven't yeah, mentioned. I, I, do I, um, I don't know. I, I uh, Well, I thought about Kirby, Trout, yeah. But uh, what about, like, an Adam Jones? I, I don't... I'm not like an Andrew Jones. I just don't... I don't see the hits. You know, I could see the homers. I don't know. I mean, I could be off there, but I just... Doesn't strike me as like having. Yeah. Got to the big so leagues he, young, but he was just he, he was started, yeah, done. He was like or or 30, 31. I don't know, but even if it wasn't him, <sighs> I'm not sure who I'd even put in his place. Like, okay, what about um, what did I say? Adam Jones. I mentioned that, right? So, no. Uh, yeah, I don't. Two thousand hits. I don't, no? I don't.
0: I don't believe that's correct. No. Uh.
1: What, uh. Love Adam
0: Jones. I don't. I don't think he. I don't think he. Okay. I don't, I don't, yeah. there's no way. He's, he did all Cesar that stuff.
1: Cesar Enough hits? Hmm. Homers? homers? Did he hit
0: the... I don't think he hit enough homers, did he? He was a, he was a get on base, use your legs kind of guy who yeah. did hit some home runs, but I don't, he never got the 300. There's no way.
1: Oh, Andre Dawson. So. Yeah. <laughs> This Andre is North. what we do
0: every week. James, we do this every week. We we, we get the answers surrounded, talk ourselves out of it, mention a guy, forget to actually answer you know, him. Who's
1: the greatest center field power hitter? It, it seems like it has to be kind of recent history, right? Because center field is hitting that many home runs other than Willie May.
0: You're asking me who the greatest center fielders um, were? You, you yeah, were a center fielder. Yeah, you remember it, that, right? Exactly. Um... <laughs> Jeez, oh, <laughs> like if there's ever a question, I'm leaning on you for, man. This is the one. Well, no,
1: the 50%, nothing. Like, I feel like there's some trick in that, like fifty. That's a hard thing. The, like Ricky Henderson, yeah. did he play center like fifty percent? Reggie, no. You know? no, he did not play
0: fifty percent. Reggie did not play fifty percent. Oh, not even man. close. Uh, like I thought about yeah, like Kenny Lofton, I, I didn't did have the homers. That. There's no way he had the home runs, right? Bernie, Bernie Williams, thought about him. I don't, like
1: not. I think he had
0: 300 home runs. 300—that's a lot of home runs. All right, like we got—we got to answer there. We got to keep moving. What? Yeah, you got any guess better than mine you know for?
1: I, 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 like I said, I, my, I, my only doubt is Andrew Jones. I feel like.
0: Ugh. Look, I'm gonna—I—I'm I, contributing is... Mays and Griffey. You decide who the last two names are.
1: Uh, all right, Jim Edmonds. Yes, because I, I have him on my list here. You ran on him. Uh, okay, he said no Kirby, right? <laughs> uh, uh, what about Andre? And Doss? Andre and Doss? I don't like. I don't like Andrew Jones. I just don't.
0: All right, so we're gonna. All right, we're we're not gonna include Andrew. Okay, not including
1: playoffs, right? All right, right.
0: <laughs> so. Uh, all right, so, so James, I think the moral of the story is this question is <laughs> harder than I thought it was. <laughs> I still feel like we should get it, but I'm a lot more worried now than I was 10 minutes ago. So we're just going to guess, okay? Is there any chance it's Willie Mays, Ken Griffey, Jim Edmonds, Andre Dawson, and Jim Edmonds?
4: You got the two easy ones. You got Mays and Griffey. All of Andrew Jones, Jim Edmonds, Adam Jones, and Fred Lynn were all within 100 Ooh, hits of 2000, the but Fred Fred a little Lynn. short. Oh my gosh um who's bernie been on this williams, podcast bernie williams another close one only had 287 Ooh, wow, home good. runs boy oh boy but the last two are oh, wow, steve finley always, always who snuck in fabulous. at 304 home runs
0: right he's in that 300 300 club Ugh.
4: and yes. maybe my favorite player of all time oh Tony yeah Hunter. good
1: one
0: oh god i you Ooh. know Doug, we should have gotten this, man. I've spent so much time on center field research because this ballot has Beltron and Andrew and Torrey Hunter on it. Well, I, I would uh, Well, I think oh, I've still
1: got to run. There's so many ones that were close. Uh, but yeah, Finley, I should have remembered the 300, <laughs> 300. 300 <I> <laughs> I didn't, didn't even Hunter, mention Steve Finley, don't. who
0: you played against.
1: Well, look, we were here we were. We were undefeated
0: <laughs> in 2023 until now. It took one guess to screw that up, uh, Doug. If we'd have gotten it right, you think we might have ridden that and gone undefeated in trivia uh, I all would year?
1: Say maybe all of the middle <laughs> week of January. I think we would have been undefeated. <laughs>
0: yeah, we'd have made it till at least the
1: next show, right? All right, whatever. Let's
0: move this along to the highlight of our trivia segments, which, of course, has nothing to do with us. Uh, let's bring in the mayor of Starkville the great Tim McMaster to play another memorable play-by-play clip involving this week's answer. And Tim, it feels like the possibilities are just amazing this week. So what do you got for us?
3: I think I'm going to surprise you with what I've got. So I thought you would get Tory. I thought you guys would get three out of four. I didn't think there was any chance of you pulling Steve Finley. and I was right about that, but I did think you'd get Tory. But because of that... I thought Jim
0: Edmonds was the stumper.
3: Yes. So I looked... I was looking for Steve Finley, and, but I was willing to change my direction if, if I didn't find a gem, but I found a gem. Uh, because every once in a while, we need Vin Ugh. Scully back in Starkville, and this was an opportunity. <laughs> We're going to go back to 2004, October 2nd, the Dodgers and the Giants, Dodgers trying to wrap up the NL West, and we had this moment. Franklin said Wayne ready and deal swung on high fly ball to deep right field wherever it goes the Dodgers have won and it's a grand slam home run. I have always felt there are no words to describe a situation like this except the roar of the crowd and for those of us privileged to be here watching the Dodgers. Just about jump out of their uniform. What a finish as Steve Finley hits it into the seats in right field. And the Dodgers come up and roll a seven in the bottom of the ninth inning and beat the Giants seven to three.
0: Ah, uh, what goosebumps. <laughs> Wherever it lands, the Dodgers are going to win. Ah, oh, Vin. Yeah. That Amazing. <laughs> Tim, well done. Uh, I thought you were going to go with like a Maze clip, but Vin Scully calling a uh, nice. the ultimate Vince Grand Slam. slam just ooh. I have
3: to really be in in a the right mood to search for like a <laughs> Willie Mays clip. That's a that's a different <laughs> venture right. than finding well, Steve Finley from two thousand four.
0: Plenty of chill bumps with that one. <laughs> so good job by the mayor James. Great job with that question. Thank you so much for joining us.
4: That's it. Well, thank you for having me. It was yeah. a pleasure.
0: I'll do it again, my friend. Thank you.
4: You're welcome. you know, you
0: too can be part of this show, just like James Terry. And we'll tell you how to do that in just a few minutes. Well, as you've noticed, possibly because it's like 19 degrees outside your door, it's still the off-season. So instead of that strange but true segment uh, that we do in this part of the show in the season, we're going to head back to... Let's do a little drum roll, please. Can we do that? The dugout! And that is the place where we gather around our friend, Doug Lanville, and allow him to tell one of his many entertaining stories about his life and his times. And I always look forward to these stories. So this week, since we've established on this show its Hall of Fame season... Uh, Doug, our idea was we would have you tell a story about Hall of Famers that you played with. Mm-hmm. Except then I looked, and it turned out you only played with two of them, uh, Jim yeah. Tomey and Ryan Sandberg. And I'm honestly not sure how that's possible. I must be like but a Doug,
1: Hall of Fame void maker or something. I don't know. That's weird.
0: I, well, you got several guys on this ballot that you played with, so <laughs> this is subject to change. But, Doug, I'd love for you to tell us a story about one of those guys, Jim Tomy, Ryan Sandberg. Um, so, once you do that, I'm just going to sit back and enjoy whatever it is you're about to spin.
1: Well, Jay, I decided to focus on Ryan Sandberg. Uh, you know, Tommy was a wonderful teammate, good man, and uh, made us feel welcome all the time. But Ryan is one that goes way back. He has the Phillies history, as you know, a Philly fan. Um, but also the fact that I had such admiration for him as a player who is athletic second baseman that sort of defied the position, you know, the power hitter, the MVP, the guy who could steal some bases. It was aggressive. And uh and I think the thing that changed my career in terms of the possibility of it was walking into spring training the first year I was on the major league roster and seeing my locker next to Ryan Sandberg's. I mean, it was wow. it was the moment that said, "Wait a minute. This is this is real. This is serious. This is time of renewed focus and i remember making a commitment that day saying okay now i got to really go to the next level i'm here and as you know coming up in the minor leagues the uncertainty of being you know in in places where you're not sure you can even see the major leagues and finally getting to spring training in mesa arizona and seeing his jersey hanging there uh was transformational but outside of that was the day-to-day inter interactions with a the hall of famer now to be able to talk to him about baseball in the game. And, and Ryan wasn't a very vocal person, but you could always get the little tidbits and nuggets of information just about experience. Uh, And so I want to take you on a journey to what else Ryan Sandberg means Uh, a few years ago for the museum. And I should look this up, but I'll, I'll in, uh, in Philadelphia, I think it's the American Jewish uh, history museum in Philadelphia. And I'll have to look that up. I'll get it exactly before the end of this. But uh, I got to write for a publication because they had a baseball exhibit. And in the exhibit, I decided to focus on degrees of separation. And I, I said, well, it, it could be kind of cool to talk about how I can get from Jackie Robinson to me in my own career. Like, how, who, what teammates does it take to get that done? <laughs> and it actually wasn't that many people. I it was, you know, between the, the Brooklyn Dodgers and, and the spillovers into L.A. and the Drysdales, all of a sudden I found myself connected to Bill Buckner. And then eventually that was easy because Bill Buckner played for Ryan Sandberg. So for this paper, for this this essay, I called everyone I could that was around. And Jimmy Rollins ended up being part of that because Sandberg had coached him and so on and managed him. So I, I go back. And I call, I talk to Bill Buckner. I get his info. And the thing that was interesting about Bill Buckner is he said he used to smash his helmet, uh, but then there was there was coaches that he came along with the Brooklyn Dodger heritage that said, and Dick Allen was one of them, by the way, he wasn't you know had the history, and he said, "Why are you smashing your helmet, man? You don't think you're going to get a hit the next time?" And Dick Allen, in part of that with Bill Buckner, he used to get mad and just like. And felt like that's how he had to express himself. And Allen just sort of brought him back, you know, Junior Gilliam, these this this class, this pedigree of of sort of legendary players. And so Bill Buckner tells this story about how he had to learn how to control his emotions in a way to to really show that he believes in his ability. And so I finally got to Sandberg in this chain, and I asked him about Bill Buckner. So typically I would interview the player and I'd get to Buckner, I'd go the player before. So I said, all right, what did you learn from the previous? You're paying it forward. So if you have Don Drysdale and Junior Gilliam and all these cats, you have Dick Allen and now you have Bill Buckner, what did Bill Buckner show you? And what was so fascinating was Ryan Sandberg was the player I looked to, not only from that experience in spring training, but from when he was on a rehab assignment in Daytona Beach and came down to A-ball after he broke his hand against the Giants in spring training. I think it was, I don't know, year 93 maybe. And he came to A-ball and Sandberg shows up, a big leaguer, and I'm in A-ball and I'm like, wow, I get to watch this guy work. Sandberg didn't say a word. He hardly spoke the whole time. He just acted. <laughs> he just did it. He worked hard. He showed up. He, he outsmarted people, he just did it and he's just executed. And I needed to see that because Sandberg was the guy that allowed me to be able to be low-key and laid back. I was always afraid that, oh, you're not passionate. I used to hear this, right? You're not passionate enough, you know, to show more emotion. So I didn't I I finally had seen someone in Sandberg that no, you could go about your business and not have to grandstand or do whatever or express anything. Certain ways, it's a be you and be yourself. And I needed that when Sandberg came down to do that. So I asked him where he got that from. He said, no, that was how I was. I was always reserved. But one day I got I got all this criticism about not showing enough emotion. So I decided, you know, talking to Bill Buckner and these cats, I decided I'm gonna smash my helmet. Like I'm gonna get mad and I smash my helmet. And then I realized, as Bill Buckner learned, I don't have a helmet anymore. <laughs> <laughs> what am I gonna do? Like they didn't sound like they could, in the Minor leagues, they could just make more helmets easily. So he just was out without a helmet. So he had to figure out how to get a replacement. And he said, "What was the what was the good of that? What was the point of that?" Um, and so I think of Sandberg not only as the Hall of Famer, but not only as a guiding a, a a north star for my career when I finally made the major league roster, but someone who validated that there's many ways to lead. There's many ways to prove your worth. There's many ways to perform and that you need actually this diversity of personalities to be successful as a team, because at different times in a season, 162 games or whatever, you're, you're going to carry the team with those different personalities. You're going to need different perspectives to be interjected to right the ship. And whether it came from Bo Buckner and his style or Ryan Sandberg or Jimmy Rollins with swagger, it was all important for the journey of being a true team. And so forever, I'll be thankful for Ryan Sandberg, not only the great player he was, but even in his (laughs) silence, I found him to make an impact on my career. Wow, what a great story. That's one of my favorite stories that you've told
0: on this show because um, it's a window not just into Ryan Sandberg, but a window into the way people perceive baseball players. You know, we're we're always watching guys do their thing and – judging that and the you know the mistake that so many people make is to judge players from not from the players perspective but from the fans perspective and how we think human beings should act and it's a reminder that everybody's wired differently everybody's path is different and there are so many ways to be great at something and you know the only way that matters is your way <laughs> you know the way you're wired the way uh, the, the way your brain and your mind and your your heart and your body work together to make you the best you can be that's not just true in baseball it's true of everything but it, it Because you told that story the way you did, Doug, it's such a lesson and such a window into much more than baseball. And that's the beauty of the dugout segment. You're a teacher, man. (laughs) You should be a professor. Oh, wait, you are. (laughs) Okay, that's going to do it for this week's show. We'll be bringing you podcast magic. Just like this, all off-season long on The Athletic Baseball Show, which is available in its entirety, absolutely free, everywhere you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to read any of the amazing hot stove baseball coverage in The Athletic, we can tell you how. Just go to theathletic.com slash baseball show. And if you're a new subscriber, you can subscribe for just... $1.99 a month for the next 12 months. But also remember, you too can be part of this podcast. What we do is we pick the most fun listener trivia question of the week. Then that listener gets to join us right here and prove. Once again, there's almost no baseball trivia question we can't get wrong, even here in the year 2023. So how could you hit us with a question? Well, you can always email us at Starkville at TheAthletic.com. That's Starkville with an E on the end. Or since Twitter is still in operation, you can find both of us on Twitter. I keep forgetting, though, how I would find Doug Glanville. Doug, is there a way to find you on Twitter?
1: I am. I am somewhere flying south for the winter with all the birds that tweet on Twitter. But I'll go with at Doug Glanville. D-O-U-G-G-L-A-N-V-I-L-L-E. That's it. That's it. And I am at Jason S-T,
0: Jason with a -A Y-S-T, J-A-Y-S-O-N-S-T. Please remember to hashtag those questions, hashtag Starkville Q-S. So, Doug, thanks for playing. Thanks to Jay Jaffe for visiting us. Thanks to James Terry for the great trivia question. Thanks to the mayor of Starkville, Tim McMaster, for producing us and putting up with us. And thanks to you all for listening. As you all know, we're on a little bit different schedule here in the offseason. But I promise that Doug and I will see you soon on, on Starkville. Starkville. <laughs>